Gentlemen, in honor of our, I think to say mutual, favorite musician of all time, Weird Al, uh, and I will expect no debate on that, I'd like to know, what is your lame claim to horror fame? Well, let me start by saying that it is a fucking tragedy that Weird Al Yankovic has not been given the Lifetime Achievement Award. I know they usually save that for someone who's a little bit older, mm-hmm. but the man is revered through every genre. He has touched, he has his finger in every pie. Everyone is excited to have their song parodied by the man. I mean, is there any more more beloved in the music industry? I would say no. I'd concur. But with that being said, I would say that my lame claim to horror fame is that one time I actually tried out for the same hockey team for the guy who didn't get picked, whose mask, whose goalie mask ended up going to Jason in chapter three. No kidding. Yeah. Pretty lame. That's yeah, pretty lame. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that Mr. Alfred Yankovic would have included that in his song had he known about it, Garrett. But yes, it's, uh, it's pretty good. I try not to bug him too much, you know. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And in 2021, he's hardly weird at all. He's like normal Al Yankovic at this point. <laughs> well, let's see. What do I got? I uh, happen to work with a fellow who has an uncle that's in the business. He's been doing movies since the early 80s, and he is in the lighting department, and he's worked on such films as Halloween, Halloween 2, Halloween 3, The Fog, Rock and Roll High School, Teen Wolf, Back to the Future, Alien from L.A., Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Glory, Patriot Games, Romeo and Juliet, Mrs. Doubtfire, Moulin Rouge, and he just goes on and on. He's still working a day. He, uh, he's worked recently on the Power Rangers movie, Terminator Genesis. He did the two fantastic Planet of the Apes movies, uh, Black Panther, Thor Ragnarok. And uh, he's did some work on Godzilla versus Kong that comes out later this year. Uh, he's a, he's, he works in the lighting department. He dated Jamie Lee Curtis for two weeks. He said Jack Nicholson is the biggest asshole he's ever worked with. He said Nicole Kidman is one of the nicest ladies he's ever worked with. And he said the prettiest person on the planet is Jennifer Connelly. Okay. Most of that checks out. (laughs) (laughs) That's all disputable. No. (laughs) (laughs) I like how you referenced Alien in L.A., the Kathy Ireland film that went absolutely nowhere. (laughs) That's exactly why I had to reference it. Who's thought about Kathy Ireland in 20 years? Nobody. But now you are, and now you wish it was 1993 again. Where's Michael Jordan? (laughs) I do wish it was 1993 again. Every day, honestly. (laughs) What do you got, John? All right. Well, mine uh, is pretty lame. My wife knows the son of Kim Henkel, who is uh, probably most well-known, if he's well-known at all, for being the director of the probably best Texas Chainsaw movie, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation Oh, yes. And he worked on the original, too, didn't he? Uh, yes, he uh, has the screenplay by credit. Oh, that's actually kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. Uh, well, I thought it was lame because I don't know this person. Never met them. I'm a one degree separated. <laughs> I guess I'm two degrees separated from Kim Henkel. Let's make sure we... Under- it's not that Kim Henkel's lame. It's the fact that you're claiming your fame. Right. He, very cool. <laughs> Me, not so cool. Uh... To be clear, good point, Mark. 
no nothing against Kim or his son, who, from what I understand, is a perfectly fine gentleman. <laughs> I thought these were supposed to be made up things. I didn't know you guys were going to actually talk about random third degree connections you had with people from the actual horror industry. So mine's complete bullshit. So if any listeners are out there, it's like, oh, I didn't know that that story about the mask. No, that was made <laughs> up. I thought we were just going to have fun with it, much like the Weird Al song. But no, evidently we're going into like the deep dive histories of our our actual lame claim to fame are you sure the weird al song is false the the, those might be true stories in weird al's weird life (laughs) at one point he says he saw someone eat a volkswagen i'm gonna err on the side of caution and say probably bullshit (laughs) (laughs) well this is what this is what happens when you don't clarify the question before we sit down to record (laughs) wouldn't be a cold open if uh we pre-planned that would just be like a warm open a lukewarm open yeah. Nobody likes that. Real quick, John, I just want to, I don't know if you, you may have said this and I just missed it, but he is producing the next iteration of the Texas Chainsaw, Kim Hinkle. Uh, I didn't say that. Yeah, I didn't know that. Cool. Uh, one other thing I forgot to mention about the the fella who has an uncle that's in the business. Uh, he wrote a movie called Without Warning that came out in 1980. And I'm only bringing it up because it's a camp movie. And we just recently did the burning not too long ago. What makes this one interesting, and now I really want to watch it, is it stars Jack Palance. Anybody who has watched Mystery Science Theater knows that guy. Or City Slickers. He's curly in City Slickers. And it's about aliens coming down and killing campers. Classic. So there's a little twist on the on the, on the the camp genre. Okay. I could get behind uh, an alien camp horror movie. There's, that's a mixture of things I didn't know I wanted until now. Yeah, I'm going to go find it after this podcast and watch it. I'm sure it's great because we've all heard about it before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you imagine if NASA actually got people to go to a, another planet that had life on it and we get there and the first thing we do is like, there it is, boys, our first contact with advanced alien civilizations Yo, look at that tiny little campfire. Let's go fuck with those people. <laughs> like, what a waste of time and effort at that point. Look at all of these warm anuses ready for the probe. God. That's what aliens say. <laughs> Jesus, Mark. They're warm because of the campfire, just to point out why I said that. I'm sure. I wonder if there's been, like, it's probably a short story of... Uh, like a abduction story where it turns out oh, humans are the aliens and we're abducting and probing, of course. This is sounds like some Shamalan shit where we were the aliens probing all along kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, I can't think, I mean, like I'm constantly thinking of anal probing, but I can't think of it without thinking of the Simpsons. Uh, we've reached the limits of what uh, probing can tell us. Welcome back to Butt Stuff, the podcast. <laughs> I got a Hey, all you creatures from cyberspace. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Grave Talk podcast. My name is Mark. Again, join with Garrett and John. Fellas, today is a cold one. It's snowing in Texas for the first time in a year or so. I don't know. When was the last time we had snow? It's been a bit. Yeah, but like this is like snow snow. Like I when it snows before, it's like, oh, look at the cute little flurry that barely sticks. What sticks on car? But like we're getting serious uh uh, accumulation here. This is like northern snow. Yeah, it's like an inch or two, which is pretty rare for us here in Austin. Yeah. 
today I found out what auxiliary heat and emergency heat means because my heater was pumping through cold air and I was freezing my ass off. I had to go bundled up. Made me wish I had a fireplace. Apparently, these heaters have settings. It says, oh, hey, the, the outside unit is not working hard enough to warm you up. So let's tap into the electrics so we can triple charge your energy bill this month. Horror at its finest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bills. Given the, the man is money for the electricity. Uh, well, what have you guys been up to? Any news or any movies you want to talk about before we get going? Um, I don't have much in the horror movie uh, vein. You know what this podcast is about. But I have been playing the Dead Space games. And I think I'm ready to rank them. Uh, these I don't know enough to know if this is controversial. But I'd like to tell you all so you can tell me if I'm wrong. Okay, before you rank them, which ones are you ranking? There's four or five total. One, two, and three. Okay. And admittedly, here's a spoiler for the rankings. I haven't finished three yet. I'm like almost done. Uh, but unless something dramatically changes its position on the list is not going to improve <laughs> yeah so i think two is the best i had the most fun playing that then one then i'd rather play nothing than three <laughs> i'm not enjoying three as much as uh i expected you nailed it that exactly that is the the perfect ranking system <sighs> three had a very interesting concept of a story and then the actual development slash gameplay of it just kills that in a way that you're just like oh man you you ruined my experience yeah that's how i feel and i don't like the crafting your own weapon even though i totally crafted like a super op weapon so it is making things easy but i don't know and like the 50 different things i have to collect uh, i don't like any of that so boo on three but two man that i'd never played it before i play one when it came out but uh, two and three i'm playing i played for the first time and Sad that I slept on too. That was a great one. Totally agree. Uh, yeah, three is unfortunately a product of triple A company meddling. They added a two player mode and then they added DLC and, and stuff you had to buy out in the store. And then that crafting system, like you said, really clunky, not good. But the snow setting was very, very promising. It's unfortunate that that one came out the way it did. John, I will just go ahead and say there's also the Dead Space iOS game and there is a Wii game called Dead Space Extraction. You can go ahead and slot Extraction before 3 and then we can drop the iOS game maybe after 3 and that'll complete your ranking. I'm playing them off Game Pass, so unless the iOS game or the Wii game are on Game Pass, I will probably never play them. Okay, well you can come over and play it. I got the one on Wii. Okay. Waggle the Wiimotes at the TV and shoot some dead guys. What are they called? The creatures? I already forgot. It's been a while necromorphs that's a good name yeah yeah the story for i mean even the story in three all right i mean they're definitely spreading it thin i don't know that there was three games worth of story here um and some of the and i haven't done any research because i didn't want to spoil it for me so maybe if i do some research like i'll understand it more nope but they're like characters in three just don't behave in any way that i can understand People hate me for no reason, and I don't know. I just can't get into it. No, number three was a game by committee, mm. and it had a really cool... The the insanity aspect of it was a really cool concept, but unfortunately executed extremely poorly, and they spent too much time developing a system that tried to force you to do modern gaming where you had to purchase materials and spend way too much time crafting and had like learning curves that were too steep to kind of make you want to do that. No, they they took a, a pretty promising idea and then did what a lot of games at the time did and just fucked it all up because they wanted more money. Yeah. 
There's two animated movies, John. I don't know if you want to get into those. I forget exactly what they're called. Maybe one's called Afterlife, Dead Space Afterlife or something like that. I never got around to watching those. I wonder if they're any good. I'll have to check them out. The one called Deadfall is actually pretty decent. It's not going to add a whole lot, but it's a little bit more backstory for some things. Okay. You'll have to see if they're streaming anywhere and uh, and check them out. That could be cool. Uh, Aftermath and Downfall. Those are the names of the two animated features. Okay. Well, in 2022, we're going to get a spiritual successor. I'm getting tired of that term, but it's uh, literally true here. The spiritual successor to Dead Space being created by the original director and some of those members of the team, Callisto Protocol. So if you guys are interested, go out there and check the trailer out. I'm very excited to see how this pans out. It looks like a return to space horror that I've been missing in my life since Dead Space 3. Uh, Hopefully it's good. I will say I'm very surprised they never made a Dead Space movie. Uh, they made multiple very bad Doom movies, but no Dead Space. That's intriguing. I think we should just put a moratorium on asking for video game based movies. Probably for the best. Yeah. Well, I can only cite Castlevania, the show. It's really good. So I think there's room for good stuff. We just need it in the right hands. But you're right. Wishing for these things will probably just make more bad properties and then we'll be all sad. Well, that's an animated TV show. That's a little bit different than a movie. Um, you can actually develop characters. You can take a little more time with things. I've There's very few video game-based movies that are, that are worth a damn. That's true. But what if we got Oscar Isaac as Isaac? Huh? Whoa. <laughs> Sold. All right. Well, that's enough about space undead monsters. Uh, let's get into vampires. And I'm not talking about real world vampires like Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Literally, he looks like a younger, dumber grandpa monster. Let's talk about movies from the 90s that feature vampires. Today, we're talking about 1996's Dusk Till Dawn. Uh, That one is directed by Robert Rodriguez and has the screenplay by Tarantino and was written by Robert Kurtzman. Got to give that dude a shout out. The man has been working in the horror industry for makeup effects. First movie he's credited on is our favorite, Night of the Creeps. He also did Evil Dead 2, Phantasm 2, 976 Evil, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Bride of Reanimator, Leatherface, Maniac Cop, Army of Darkness, Pulp Fiction, In the Mouth of Madness, and it just goes on and on, like I said. This guy's done a lot of stuff. Interestingly, he hasn't written a whole much other than this. Uh, he did work on the From Dust Till Dawn TV show that I had forgotten was a thing because I think that ran on Robert Rodriguez's channel, right? Didn't he have his own channel for a little bit? I believe so. Um, I don't think it was on any mainstream channel because, uh, yeah, I don't remember seeing it anywhere. So, yeah, just a, a, it gave us an opportunity to give that guy a shout out because he definitely deserves it. Uh, Wish Wishmaster, John, isn't that one of your favorites? He did that one, too. Oh, yeah. Can't get enough of Wishmaster. <laughs> Actually, the first one wasn't so bad. Uh, but talk about a series that goes downhill very fast. Okay. Well, he's not credited on the sequel, so at least he was on the good one. That explains it. Uh, <laughs> crack the code. All right. This one stars George Clooney as Seth Gecko, Quentin Tarantino as Richard Gecko. Harvey Keitel is Jacob Fuller. Juliette Lewis is Kate Fuller. Ernest Liu is Scott Fuller. Selma Hayek as Santanico Pandemonium. Cheech Marin doing his best nutty professor impersonation where he plays three different characters. We got Border Guard, Chet Pussy, and Carlos. I didn't know that character's last name was Pussy until right now. Danny Trejo is Razor Charlie, Tom Savini is the sex machine, 
Fred Williamson as Frost. was really happy to see Fred in this movie. Michael Parks as Texas Ranger Earl McGow. And a great cameo from John Saxon as the FBI agent. If you guys don't remember, John Saxon is father of Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street. So it was great to see him pop up. I I mean, we've done a lot of movies in this podcast, but... I think this one might have one of the just most all-star cast, like not Hollywood, like grade A celebrity, but horror celebrity cast. Like it's just missing like Barbara Crampton. Like what a, just what a row of people that are in this film. Yeah. Yeah. Really good lineup here. And I, you know, the back of the box I'm about to read, I thought this might've been Clooney's first role, but I guess he'd already been doing ER at this point. Well, not his first role. I know he was in a, like a teenage uh, slasher movie in the 80s. I don't remember the name of it offhand. Some cheerleader thing, I think. But uh, mm-hmm. but this one was post-Batman and Robin. Is that right? Mm, oh, I don't think so. No, I think this is pre-Batman and Robin. Yeah, it came out in 96. Wasn't Batman and Robin like a late 90s, 98, 99? I'm just making shit up now. I'm on it, fellas. Dust Till Dawn was 1996, and Batman and Robin was 1997. So a year later. Okay. That makes sense. Then I must have got confused because this back of the box references those movies. So it might just be a second generation slipcover or something. Yeah. he. Was, I mean, to think going from this movie to being Batman, what a glow up. Yeah, no kidding, right? Okay. Here's what the back of the VHS box has to say about this one. Uh, we have a real person on the back of this box, guys. An action extravaganza, says Roger Ebert. That's a name we know. Ooh, a, yeah, that actually is a real person. <laughs> It's nonstop thrills when George Clooney of Batman and Robin and TV's ER and Quentin Tarantino's, parenthesis Pulp Fiction, star as the Gecko Brothers, two dangerous outlaws on a wild crime spree. After kidnapping a father, Harvey Keitel of Pulp Fiction, and his two kids, including Juliette Lewis's natural born killers, the Geckos head south to the seedy Mexican bar to hide out in safety. But when they face the bar's truly notorious clientele, They're forced to team up with their hostages in order to make it out alive. From Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino, creators of Desperado and Pulp Fiction, From Dusk Till Dawn is explosive action entertainment, plus exclusive interviews with host star Clooney and filmmakers Tarantino and Rodriguez. I guess that was novel on a VHS tape in 1997. I would say so. How, also, are they going to mention Quentin Tarantino twice and not bring up Reservoir Dogs? Say the goddamn words! You're going to be okay! Oh, that movie was a sleeper hit, dude. That was not nearly as big as Pulp Fiction was. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that, that is true, I suppose. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Pulp Fiction changed the game at the time. Like, that was... as Whether you like it or not, we have to... You have to acknowledge, like, how much, like, Pulp Fiction, like, really fucked with cinema at that time. I love Pulp Fiction. Uh, now, all the bad Pulp Fiction knockoffs, maybe less so, but Pulp Fiction, aces. So what was your experience with Dust Till Dawn, guys, when this came out back in 96? Nothing. I was uh, 10, so there was no way I was watching from Dust Till Dawn. You know, I do remember, and it's like a very faint memory of my dad watching this movie, because uh, I remember Cheech, but like they hustled me out of the room so fast <laughs> so it must have been when it came out on vhs but uh so i didn't see this again till like the 
early 2000s or again <laughs> i didn't see this for the first time really uh until the early 2000s yeah for me this was um this movie was like advertised out the ass like because pulp fiction was such a huge hit in 94 um i remember seeing advertisements for this left and right and i would have been like what like 16 17 at the time something like that um i don't know how old i am but um the point the point is is like i had seen pulp fiction and i gotta be honest like the first time i saw pulp fiction i was like okay that was kind of cool but i just pulp fiction tarantino never really hit for me right away so when i saw the trailers for this and stuff like that it was relying so heavily on the the pulp fiction connection and um it kind of turned me off honestly i really and also i wasn't really into horror at the time either so like there's two strikes against it right there so this one kind of snuck under the radar for a good while but eventually when I did watch it, I was like, oh, OK, cool. Right on. Although this movie does suffer from Tarantino script writing. Uh, man, there, <laughs> there's some stuff in this. I'm just like, all right, calm it down, buddy. Let's go. I think I had the opposite experience, Garrett. Uh, in 1994, I was friends with a guy who became uber obsessed with Pulp Fiction. And I because of him and hanging out at his house so much, I've probably seen Pulp Fiction like 3000 times to the point where this dude was just quoting the movie left and right. So this one was immediately injected into uh, my viewing. And I actually really enjoy the the Pulp Fiction connections. Again, you know, being a fan of the Tarantino stuff, Reservoir Dogs and everything else. Like, it was really cool to see another one of these so soon after that. I'll be honest with you guys, though. I think that the last act of the movie is the weaker part of the film for me. And not saying it's bad, but I just enjoy the buildup to the reveal of what this movie actually is so much more than the actual horror, quote unquote, horror part of it. Yeah, it's a real tone shift. Um, that's for sure. But I don't know. I love this movie, every act of it. But I, I mean, I will agree. The third act is the weakest. Uh, but man, what a great film. I really like the third act. I mean, I, I, I didn't think it was as strong with like the characters as the first two acts, but I don't know. There's a lot of like a lot of payoff that I really enjoyed with it. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to say what it is, but that final, that final shot of the film, I love that. That was genius. I, I can't wait to talk about it. It was so like that made the movie for me. And I know it's such a small little like kind of like, Oh, by the way, type thing. But man, when I saw that, I was like, done. I get it. This is rad. Yeah, and again, Garrett, not to say that the last act is is bad by any means. I think it was just because I was so built into the story of following around these serial killer brothers, and I found them so interesting to just kind of end it with a a vampire shootout. I was just like, oh, man, I was hoping this would go other places, but it's definitely quintessential Robert Rodriguez, and then immediately want to find a copy of Planet Terror and throw that on because I feel like, man, I haven't seen Planet Terror in forever, and that one's great too. Yeah. The the whole kind of exploitation film vibe once they get to uh, the titty twister, so well done. Like, I think it might be done better than they did it like in later films because they were still trying new things. Uh, but just excellent homage. Guys, this movie is fantastic. But let us not forget why we're here. And I prepared a little song. Selma Hayek, you're so fucking beautiful. Mm-hmm. Man. Selma Hayek, can we just take a moment? Can we take a moment? Not only did she just look fucking amazing in this, she also 
had a snake around her, which I give her mad balls prop for because I could not do it. I would have to turn this fucking roll down. Agreed. And that was not like a small snake. It was huge. She went to therapy. She had a fear of snakes and she went to therapy to like try to get over it because I think what it said was Robert Rodriguez told her that Madonna was willing to take the part and she didn't want to lose it to Madonna. So she went to therapy to be okay with snakes and um, she did the snake scene. God. Can you imagine this movie with Madonna? No, no. <laughs> Look, I can't imagine this movie with Tarantino, but we got him in it. So I, I, I feel like anybody could just apply at this point. We have Tom Savini as a main character. <laughs> I mean, that tells you something. Tarantino did better than I would have expected, to be honest. Maybe because of the role, obviously, it was like the co-lead. But he doesn't actually talk that much, uh, even though he does have my favorite interaction in the movie. So maybe that's how he pulls it off. What interaction? Excuse me. What? Where are you taking us? Mexico. What's in Mexico? Mexicans. <laughs> I laugh every time. Yeah, this movie is so goddamn quotable. I was going to say, what do you think is the best quote in the whole movie? I think that John just gave us his. I really like Harvey Keitel's like monologue of... Uh, Look, if you look outside, I have an RV recreational vehicle, which you have to have a class two license to drive. That gets me every fucking time. I was like, there you go. The man's got you. Yeah, that was great. I also really enjoy the part where, where they go in to get the hotel room and George Clooney goes in and he's like ringing that bell forever. And the old guy's like, oh, I, what do you want? He's like, what do you think I want? You mean old bastard? I want a fucking room. <laughs> like, <laughs> and the guy just goes, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was so great. Like, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, no, this movie is definitely very enjoyable. It's been quite a while since I've seen it. So um, a lot of it was pretty fresh to me. Um, I would say I remembered maybe a quarter of this film. And I was I really enjoyed what I didn't remember. Again, we have a lot of Tarantinoism in here that I'm always just kind of like, I get a little eye rolly with certain Tarantino stuff. And I think that's just because we're so steeped in Tarantino at this point in society that... Um, some stuff that I'm sure was a lot more fresh at the time comes off a little more like eye rolly to me. Like the thing with the feet, like we get it, dude, you like fucking feet. We do not need like a slow jam foot montage. <laughs> like, let's just go. Yeah, I, I that was one of my notes, Quentin and feet. But in 1996, we didn't get it. Uh, I don't think he had that reputation yet. I think that came later. Yeah. And again, I saw this movie not when it first came out, so... I was I was pretty much aware of a lot of the Quentin Tarantino stuff before I went into it. But yeah, no, like watching it, knowing a lot of stuff, you're just like, OK, I get it. And at the same time, though, hey, if you have the opportunity to write Selma Hayek letting you drink alcohol off her leg, then damn it, you do it. <laughs> oh, no, it's not just that, dude. He had full toes in the mouth. He got to put mm -hmm. if you're going to put anybody's toes in your mouth, you can do a lot worse than Selma Hayek, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. That's true. Have you seen John's feet? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> I could guarantee you, Mark, without even seeing them, I'll tell you, they're way, way worse than Selma Hayek's feet. Look, all I know is St. Patty's Day last year, we went down to a bar and John took off his little fucking sandals and tried to pour a Guinness down his leg into my mouth. And let me tell you, it was hot. <laughs> I'm just saying. All right. There we go. <laughs> all the leg hair really added to it, too. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it foamed it up. It, it got real heady as it went down. <laughs> and then you were immediately escorted out of the bar. All right. Let's get back on this movie. <laughs> uh, Mark, what's the Rotten Tomato score for this film? Oh, I have that here. Let me tell you. 
Uh, we're sitting at a 62% out of 50 reviews with the critics and 76% of the audience likes it. That's 273,822 folks. Huh. You know, and that always jives. I always thought, man, there's like 24% of the population I could not be friends with. Uh, <laughs> nailed it. I feel that's accurate. Have you guys watched any of the subsequent sequels? I haven't seen Dust Till Dawn 2 or 3, or, or the show for that matter. Oh, were there sequels? I didn't know that. Yeah, I think they were direct to video. Um, the only thing I know is that characters who perish return in the second one. The third one, I think, is a prequel. Um, I don't know. I, I never wanted to tarnish the memory of this film by watching the sequels. I've heard the TV show is actually pretty good and it, it's, it does uh, this movie justice, but I just don't know where to watch it. So, well, Bruce Campbell is in the second one. Is he? Yeah. In the second one, um, Bo Hopkins, as you guys probably know, um, let's see, Raymond Cruz, you know him as Tuco from Breaking Bad, Danny Trejo, and in part three, we've got such great actors as, ooh, Michael Parks. That's actually kind of cool. Well, I know that the number two had Robert Patrick, the Terminator T-1000 from uh, Terminator 2. Oh, yeah. It does have Robert Patrick as book. Neither of these were uh, Robert Rodriguez or Tarantino had any involvement in this. Um, well, it looks like maybe the story of part three was written by uh, Robert Rodriguez. So the hangman's daughter, the story by Robert and Alvaro Rodriguez. That's a, that's interesting. Uh, I wonder if it's like, yeah, Robert Rodriguez wrote like a log line, you know, on a napkin, like, oh, a prequel set in the 1800s. And they're like, all right, let's put his name on the credits to try and get some people to watch this. Oh, dude, is number three a prequel? Yeah. It says... 1913. Yep. Said 100 years ago in Mexico, this horror Western is the story of the birth of vampire princess Santancio Pandemonium. Oh, it's oh, so it's Selma Hayek's origin story. And it doesn't have Selma Hayek in it. No, they, they don't have Selma Hayek money. <laughs> no, no. What year did this come out? 1999. Wow, they came out pretty close back to back. I mean, that's actually not a bad for a franchise to get that many films back to back. I wonder if they filmed them both at once. Uh, that used to be a, a a very common thing. No, they did not Lord of the Rings this thing, man. I guarantee you. <laughs> well, uh, according to Wikipedia, number two was released in March 1999. And then October 31st, 1999, number three came out. So there might be something to that. Well, then shut my mouth. <laughs> they hustled the first crew out and they brought the second crew in same sets. And we're just like, all right. Let's get number three done. They didn't change the crew. They just changed the actors. Like, thank you for your time. Next. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Danny, you want to come back and be in this one? You can be in both the sequels. Come on. He's like, what are you talking about? You're in my house. <laughs> I will say this. And this 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 is something um, this movie kind of um, really kind of started solidifying at the time when I saw it. The fact that certain directors had people they like to work with consistently and I always really enjoyed that about the the Robert Rodriguez, Tarantino, and even later on, like Wes Anderson and stuff like that. Those kind of films were like, you find people that you work really well with, and then you just, you put them in the projects you, you're excited about. And I, I've always really liked that. And I really, I, I would say it was probably Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez where I first started seeing that in a, a very consistent manner. And it kind of sunk in. It was like, oh... That's really cool. I bet some of these parts are written specifically for these people. That was that was my first kind of like exposure to that whole thing. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Yeah, I think I'd rather be associated with the Robert Rodriguez crew than the Adam Sandler clan. Fuck! 
Fuck me in the gold ass. <laughs> Shit. You know, critically and just, you know, for my soul, yes. But you know the Adam Sandler clan is making way more money. I don't know what's wrong with Americans, but they love Adam Sandler and his bad movies. <laughs> You're not wrong. They're rich as shit. <laughs> okay. You know what? Hold on. Hold on. Hot take, you guys. Hot take. I think Adam Sandler and his production studio, um, whatever it is, Happy... Ha- Happy Madison. Yes, there it is. Gets an unfair rap. I think that they churn out perfectly fine movies. Now, do they have some that are just absolute trash? Yes. But who doesn't? Let's be completely honest. I can guarantee you we can find some Robert Rodriguez films that are not great. No Robert Rodriguez film is going to be Jack and Jill. <laughs> okay. I don't think I don't think that was him, though. I think, again, though, I think those are like movies he's been in, but I don't think those are like his films. Like okay. the, the eight movie deal he got with Netflix. Have you watched all those movies that he's put out? No. Like, yes, about... A third of them are garbage, but the other two thirds are very enjoyable, fun comedies like um, the do over. Very good. Um, The one where um, I can't remember his name, uh, Joe Dirt, um, basically like he he fights his friend's dad. (laughs) That's a very funny, good movie. Hubie Halloween was a blast of a Halloween film. Uh, I'm just saying, like, I, I get it. I understand he's not for everyone and I'm not like dying on the cross for, you know, um, Adam Sandler here. But I think that he gets a very unfair rap about everything he does is trash when he actually has some really solid good films. Yep, I did see Uncut Gems. I don't think he did that one, but he was no, the no, no. star. And uh, wow, he really can't act if he wanted to. Um, but also, I totally respect that Adam Sandler made it big got all his friends' jobs, and made all his friends rich with him. Like, what's up? That's the dream. Like, I totally get it. Uh, If Netflix was going to pay me to hang out with all my friends and make movies anywhere in the world, yeah, of course I'd say yes. He wouldn't get to keep making these movies if they were such trash that no one wanted to see them. There is a massive audience for Adam Sandler films and his buddies, you know, like, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. Anyway, that was a side tangent. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to go on it. But like, I, I really bothers me when everyone's just like, oh, fucking Adam Sandler. That's and it's like, no, man, like he's super rich and famous. Like he didn't get there by basically like force feeding people shit that they didn't want. Well, here, look, here's here's my bit. I'm going to tell you, Garrett, that I'm not knocking his hustle. It's just it seems like the dude hasn't really tried that hard since like little Nikki. Yeah. And everything after that have just been kind of phone in cash grab. And I know he can do better because I used to love his stuff back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Like I loved Adam Sandler films and I want to love them again. But when you show me stuff like that one on Netflix, where is it like that Western? Oh, boy, I don't want it. I want good Adam Sandler back. And Uncut Gems was a great return to form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's the thing, though, is you, you stopped with that film, though. Like, you need to, you need to, sometimes you got to accept that you're going to eat a bad burger. You know, like, it doesn't mean that every burger at that point is shit from there on out. But it means that, like, you know, you had a bad burger. Go watch The Do-Over on Netflix if you've got, like, an hour and a half to kill. It's a very decent, good comedy. I think you guys would enjoy it. I would say watch that. And if you dig that, then look at some of the other stuff he's done on Netflix, because, again, some of them are garbage. Don't get me wrong. I've yet to see a Kevin James film that I've been excited about. Uh, Paul Blart and Paul Blart 2, the whole Blart verse. (laughs) The Blart verse. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying? Like he was the president in that horrible Pixels movie he put out for Sony. Oh, yeah. I don't think that was his film, though. I think he just I think he was just in that with people. 
But anyway, anyway, let's get back to Dust Till Dawn. I got a question for Garrett. If you were going to put Adam Sandler in this movie, who would you replace? <laughs> oh my God. That's a great question. He'd be Billy Madison doing his best Billy Madison as the Cheech Marin role in front of Titty Twisters. <laughs> I was I, I was about to say like, want to touch the pussy? <laughs> that might be entertaining. No, I think after seeing Uncut Gems... I would really like to see him as the Cheech Marin character at the very end, the one that they're there to meet. I think it'd be a great little cameo of him to be like, mm-hmm. what the fuck, man? Like, you know, that would be really cool. One place is as good as another. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, back to From Dust Till Dawn. And just kind of looking over Robert Rodriguez's filmography, Planet Terror, Machete, uh, Sin City, Guy's got some good stuff under his belt. Oh, The Faculty. I forgot he did The Faculty. That was one of his early ones. Yeah, that one holds up. I watched it, I don't know, pretty recently. And it was actually, a, it was a pretty good movie. Where do you think this one ranks in his filmography? Oh, man. I mean, that's tough. But for me, probably like top three. I mean, up there with like Sin City, Spy Kids, and then this. Wow, you said top three. Well, you said Spy Kids? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Spy Kids is like what I, I mean, again, I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but man, that was, mm, no, not for me. Oh, well, yeah, no, this is definitely up there in the, the, the upper echelon of his um, his filmography. Uh, I'd like to update my, my list. Uh, Scratch Spy Kids, that gets bumped to four. Chapter 14, The Tragedy of the Mandalorian. I forgot he directed that. That slots in the number two right after uh, Sin City and then from Dust Till Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's he's on board to do the Boba Fett show too, so I don't know what capacity, maybe an episode here and there, but... Did you say Babu Fett? <laughs> like Babu Frick? <laughs> yeah. Boba, Boba, Boba T. Fett. What do you want me to say? <laughs> okay. I call him Baba. <laughs> <laughs> We're tight like that. It's cool. He lets me. Uh, let's talk about this fucking vampire movie though. Okay, let's do it. How's this one start off? So this one starts off, which I did not remember at all. It starts off in uh, your standard uh, middle of nowhere, Texas uh, convenience store. Uh, Would you call it a convenience store? Or would it just be like a little shop at that point? Whatever it is. General store. Benny's World Liquor is what the store says. So we start off in there. A cop shows up. They have a little like, you know, typical middle of nowhere, Texas, you know, small town banter. And then you find out that George Clooney and his brother, the Gecko Brothers, who one of them played by Tarantino, one played by George Clooney, is actually they've got hostages. And the clerk is kind of in the middle of a robbery. There's this whole scene where he's supposed to play it cool, get rid of the cops so they don't kill these these girl hostages he has. But Tarantino being Tarantino's like, yo, he's making faces. He's giving signals. He's paranoid as fuck. Like, I think we're supposed to believe that Tarantino is completely like mentally not there, right? Absolutely. And this whole introduction is like the most Tarantino I think this movie is. Oh, yeah. Like, I feel like you could drop this scene into like any one of his movies, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, whatever, and it would totally fit. It felt, I was like, okay, you definitely wrote this part like of the script. <laughs> yeah. No, it's very Tarantino, but they decided they're going to, they're going to kill the cop. And they're like, oh man, it's going to happen. It's like, oh no, no, they're not. Seth Gecko is like, you know, like, no, we're going to play it cool. That's not what we're about. Let's just let him do what his thing is. We'll keep an eye on him. Um, so the cop comes back out of the bathroom and is all like, you know, well, give me that bottle of booze. Bam! Gets his fucking head blown off, like right in front of the clerk. Tarantino did not wait. He was just like, nope. He's giving him signals, like completely crazy out of his gourd. Just like, you know, bam. He said he mouthed, help me. I saw it. 
do you think he mouthed help me? I like rewatched it and I didn't see it, but I was like, hmm, I wonder. I don't think he did. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No, he definitely did not. Something that's revealed as they continue on their trip down to Mexico is that Richard Greg, I almost said Richard Greco. <laughs> Richard Greco. Yes. <laughs> Richard Gecko is hallucinating people talking to him. And you see that when he's talking to Juliette Lewis's character where she's like, Richie. Would you do me a favor and eat my pussy for me, please? Uh, sure. Like, she doesn't say that. Right. He's either imagining a lot of this shit or he's just full-blown Looney Tunes. You know what I mean? He's hallucinating it for sure because he thinks it's real. Because later, I mean, we're skipping ahead, but later he asks her in the RV, he's like, do you really need me to do that for you? She's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you know what you asked me? Uh, and then they get interrupted, but he believes that she said that yeah you're right yeah so yeah he he loses it shoots the cop and then um everything goes crazy there's a big old shootout the clerk gets a gun and shoots a hole through richard's hand and i thought i thought he got hit in the body because i've been so long since i've seen it. i was like oh man we just killed tarantino's character out the gate but everything goes crazy they burn that dude alive that was actually a really cool scene where he's like when i count to three you shoot the bottles behind him and he's lighting a roll of toilet paper to chunk over there and um they light him up they kill the two girls, or did they get away? I can't remember. I, I think they kill them. Well, wait, they got one in the trunk, right? Or was the is this two completely different women? That's a different woman. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think if they didn't outright kill them, they kill them when the whole place blows up. So they're, they're leaving, and um, Seth is scolding Richard for, you know, this is not a low profile. This is not how we do business. Killing cops, burning places down, you know, like, he's got a plan. Like, he's a professional criminal, and you can tell that he's got his shit together. You get the fact that, you know, George Clooney's gonna have to kind of play babysitter to Tarantino's character a little bit. Then we get the the very Tarantino intro, where we get a, a song, and we get that, like, weird look into the trunk that was very weird for me. Oh, I thought it was so cool. I was like, man, what a unique way to show us they have a hostage in the trunk. Yeah, it's like an x-ray shot. It, I thought it was super interesting. I liked it. It felt a little grindhousey to me. I thought it was kind of cool. Mm -hmm. I, I see at that point in the film, though, we hadn't, we don't know that it's going to be super grindhousey. We just know that this is kind of like, a, oh, man, this is a really intense, you know, kind of crazy scene. So when you see that, you're like, this visually seems out of place. But then later on, it kind of makes sense with what we see. But like at the time, it, it threw me off. I was like, why the fuck did we do that? Why do we need an x-ray shot of the trunk? So anyway, they drive off get a room at the hotel, and then we cut to our other main characters, Harvey Keitel, Juliette Lewis, and Ernest Liu. So Scott, Katie, and Jacob Fuller. He's an ex-pastor or preacher. I don't remember which one he is, but um, he's having a crisis of faith because his wife died in a car accident, and his kids are, are with him. They're going to Mexico. Now, are they legitimately going to Mexico just for vacation, or were they going down there for like something else? I don't know if they were going to Mexico at all. I think they were just vacationing in the south yeah he was just driving the rv because he just bought it because uh, they want to get a he want the carvey Keitel uh, or jacob wants to get a motel room and his kids are sort of busting his balls about it though because they're when he bought the rv he was like oh we won't have to get hotels we could stay in here we're self-contained and he's like give me a break i just bought it i was excited i want to sleep in a real bed and so they all end up going to the same hotel the geckos are at and uh 
they almost run over um oh my god i almost called him gordon (laughs) they almost run over seth gecko well i think that was intentional i don't think he had any interest in getting out of the way right like he was eyeballing that rv he's like Mm -mm. just found my getaway vehicle you know what i mean yeah i think like at first it looked like he wanted to kill them he's like how dare you do this but then yeah i think the wheels were spinning because um well no the it doesn't add up because he hadn't known that his hostage was killed yet yeah spoiler for five more minutes later into the movie because he went out to go get ice or do whatever he went to go get food to cut back real quick uh the gecko brothers get a room at this hotel they pull the hostage out of the trunk they take her inside and seth is like okay listen to me you have my word you follow these rules you're gonna get out of this alive everything's gonna be fine but do not fuck with me do you understand He's like, you know, like, I'm going to go get some medical stuff. I'm going to get some food. I'll be back in a minute. Do not let her go anywhere. And then he leaves. That's the scene where the Keitel family, um, like, almost hit him. And, yeah, I don't think he intended to initially rob them, but I think he saw this and it was, like, the plan immediately formulated in his head, uh, which goes to show you that, like, Seth Gecko's pretty smart dude. Like, he's got his shit together as far as, like, his chosen career path. And don't forget, though, that they, they've heard all over the television, over the radio, that the Gecko brothers are nationally famous at the moment while they're trying to get apprehended. So they need to, like, basically find a way into Mexico, right? Because they're, they're going to go drop off this briefcase of money, right? They're going to go drop off this money to this uh, Charlie in Mexico, so he needs to find a way to get across the border and do it nonchalantly so he doesn't draw attention. So that's when I think he saw this RV. He's like, oh, this is my ticket. I'm going to hide us out in this RV. We're going to cross the border. We're going to go to the the meeting point. Yeah, good point. That's exactly, yeah, that's the way it goes. So he he goes and gets food. He comes back and Richard has killed the woman. Now, this is a very interesting scene because the way they do it is in most of these films now, you'd actually see like a very gory you know, hold on the the scene of carnage, yada, yada, yada type thing. But this, you actually see Clooney's reactions as he's asking what happened. And there's little flashes of the scene where Richard has, I guess, killed this woman and raped her. Uh, you don't get to see much of it. So it's just kind of like, it's still very ambiguous on what happened. Where's the woman? What? I mean, what? The woman, the, the, host- the fucking hostage. Richard, where is she? She's in there. What the fuck is she doing in there? Richard, what's wrong with you? Before you flip out, okay, let me just explain what happened, yeah, exp- right? Explain it to me. I need an explanation. What is the matter with you? There's nothing wrong with me, brother. That woman tried to escape and I did what no, I had to do. No. That woman wouldn't have said shit if she had a mouthful of it. Wrong, wrong, wrong. He lies, or, well, I guess maybe he was hallucinating. Hard, I mean, he lies, because he's like, you don't understand. When you left, she became a totally different person. She started going crazy. She was hysterical. And Seth was having, like, none of his shit. But he does try to, like, justify, I guess, his rape and murder, uh, which is just further shows how, like, depraved uh, he is. Is this... My fault. No, it's your fault. Is this my fault? fault? Do you think that this is what I am? This is not 
me. I am a professional fucking thief. I don't kill people that I don't have to, and I don't fucking rape women. What you are doing, what you are fucking doing, what you are doing is not how it's done. Do you understand that? Do you just say fucking yes? Say yes, Seth, I understand. Yes, Seth, I understand. Say, say yes, Seth, I fucking understand. I understand, Seth. Seth loses his shit. He's like, this is not how we do this. You need to fucking chill your shit out, man, because this is like going to get us in trouble. This scene also is so well done. Uh, Just the way it kind of unfolds in front of you with George Clooney walking through the hotel room. He's handing the burger to Quentin Tarantino and he's just kind of talking about the plan and why he's late. And then he like picks up two hamburgers and looks at the two hamburgers like, wait, why do I have this extra hamburger? And he looks at the couch the woman's not where he left her. He's like, where's Gloria? <laughs> like, and like, and yeah. And then the scene unfolds and it's just, yeah, I, I think because the, like you said, Garrett, it doesn't hold and show you the complete violence that is, is taken in full frame, but just those flashes and George Clooney's a very good actor, as we all know, like his horror in his eyes of just knowing that his brother is this malicious serial killer like worse than him even though seth is also bad but it seems like seth has some sort of code of ethic that lacks in richard's personality but then he he's able to just completely turn that off you know and be like you're my brother so i'm gonna forgive you for this and it's like dude i don't know even in the like let's say that i was a bank robber okay and i had some code about not killing people like even though you're my blood I don't think I'm going to be able to let my brother off the hook if he went out and just started doing really bad things. You know what I mean? Well, I think that's the thing. Seth, none of these people are good people. They are both depraved criminals. Seth is just good in comparison how uh, disturbed Richie is. But if you isolated him and put him next to non-criminals... You see how fast he can switch to violence when needs to be. When he they get to the titty twister and he beats up Cheech like right out the gate. Then he almost gets into another fight. Then he's like, I'm going to finish his bottle. And I'm going to go bust it over that guy's head even after he won. Um, so he's a, he's a bad dude. Just slightly less bad than the outright evil that Richie is. Well, yeah, he says he's like, he's like, I'm a, I'm a, a bank robber. I'm a, a criminal. I, I do heists. I don't kill people unless I absolutely have to. And so to see Richard's complete disregard for all of that, I think definitely kind of puts him in a a weird ethical position, which was very interesting to have for this type of character so early on in the the film. And it was like, oh, okay, is this our, our bad guy with a heart of gold, you know, like type thing. But <clears throat> clearly that's not it. But um, you do get an idea that there there is an ethics or rule guideline that he abides by. And Richard is not, part of that at all true okay that's a good point and so it, even though he's like our quote-unquote hero right he is not a good guy yeah he's an anti-hero for sure so at this point they it's it's audible time seth is now going to uh enact his plan where they they kidnap um the fuller family and then use them to get across the border uh so harvey Keitel's kid is chinese um, you know, he's adopted. So when they bust in and they see Harvey Keitel and, you know, his kid, they're like, what are you guys, boyfriend or girlfriend? Or they're two boyfriends, rather. And he's like, no, that's my son. He goes, he doesn't look Japanese. And Harvey Keitel, man, just so deadpan. He's such a great actor. He goes, neither does he. He looks Chinese. <laughs> yeah, that was actually really well written. And I actually think his wife was um, Asian, though. 
like in the picture that he showed him, like, who is this? Like, I think he had an Asian wife. So I think that is like his kid. Oh, maybe that was it. And then that's actually where we also get the scene where um, Richie hears Juliette Lewis say, you know, I want you to eat my pussy. And then you can, at this point we get the, the full on confirmation that Richie is crazy and hearing what the fuck he wants to hear in his own little world. Yeah. And they also build Harvey Keitel being like, Hey, how can I trust you? Kind of thing. Like he's, he's actually fairly defiant in the face of two criminals pointing guns at his head and his family. You know, he's like, no, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. You know, when, when Seth is laying out the plans, like you guys are going to drive us to Mexico and he gets up and he's going for the door. He's like, no, that's not happening. And then he, Seth has to point the gun at his kid's head and says, you're going to do it or your, your family's going to die. And he's like, all right, then fine. I was like, man, you're you're really pushing it there, Jacob, you know? Yeah, but at that point I think he's he's at a point mentally where, you know, not that not what does he have to lose cuz he does do things for, you know, the the safety of his kids, but I think he's also smart enough to know like like I can't trust you to not do what you're going to say you do. So like what's what's better for me to to give it my best now to try to prevent this from going down or go along with this thing. And I think he does I think um Tarantino does a really good job of writing this out. Like this is a really good verbal interplay that like is really confrontational, but very calm in the moment. Um, we had a lot of that in the RV too. Seth is kind of trying to get to know Jacob, Harvey Keitel's character and asking a little bit about his history, you know, kind of playing it cool, kind of like, yo, look, you guys have lived through this. And then Harvey Keitel is like, I can't trust your word. Like you have to prove to me that you're that you're not lying. Otherwise, why would I believe you? But yeah, they go to the, the Mexico border. They are going to try to get across. They go hide in the shower with Juliette Lewis. And they're like, yo, we're going to kill her if you say anything. This was an interesting scene because his son, Scott, is like, hey, these are bad guys. I'm going to tell these cops that they're here. And if you're not going to do it, I will. And Harvey Keitel just kind of like, you shut your damn mouth and don't say a fucking word, which was really interesting, though, because at that point, Harvey Keitel is... I guess, chosen to trust Seth to some degree that he is legitimately a man of his word. Yeah, I don't think he was a, like, the son didn't see, there was no outcome involving, you know, the police that didn't get Juliet Lewis killed. She was, the gun was right to her head. There's like no way you could signal them or they could come in, like, at the bare minimum, she was going to be killed. Likely they all were going to be killed before the police could have done anything. And I think... Uh, Jacob was able to see that more clearly. Yeah, good point. I think he had to choose between doing the right thing, which is kind of what his son was trying to do versus, you know, keeping his daughter safe. You know what I mean? Like the son wanted to turn him in, get these guys off there. But he was like, no, my, you know, the, the, the Juliet Lewis's life is more important to me than turning these guys in right now. And I, for whatever reason, the son was just not getting that, I guess. Well, R- Richie starts freaking out and, and Seth's got to knock him out in the shower. Because he's about to just go ahead and off Juliet Lewis and say, this isn't going to work. We're going to get fucked. And so, yeah, Seth has to knock him out. And then Cheech and the, and the Border Patrol all comes on board and they have that scene where they open the door and, and she's sitting there on the toilet like, do you mind? You know, and they just narrowly get across the border without getting caught. And creepy Cheech character number one, he totally leers at her. And even when he's about to close the door, he like lingers and takes one last kind of long look and then closes the door. It's like, come on, Cheech. I like that you're blaming actual Cheech Marin for that, John. Like it was his, like he yeah. literally, hey, actor Cheech Marin here to search your fucking RV. <laughs> you know who this is? No. Bye bye, lard ass. 
you mean he doesn't play? This isn't him personally. I assumed uh, this is just how he lives his life as a border patrolman, a vampire bar doorman, and a gangster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you put Cheech Marin in a movie, you don't actually write him anything out. You literally just say, insert Cheech Marin's character here, and then he just brings whatever he wants to bring with him. Like that, that's how it works. Um, so they they get past the the border and then it's free sailing. They're on to a place called the Titty Twister to meet Charlie in the morning. So they pull up to what is arguably one of the coolest, you know, Robert Rodriguez, Mad Max looking bars out in the middle of nowhere. There's neon lights. There's dope ass signs. Um, shout outs to the neon guy who actually made the giant busty lady who had her nipples twisted. I mean, that's not easy to do. Yeah, it was incredible neon work. Um, honestly, that bar would be a tourist attraction with that kind of neon activity. We're not talking just your, you know, Budweiser neon sign here. This is some of the great, this is some high end shit. Yeah. Gourmet neon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, fellas, as somebody who's been to Mexico on a couple occasions, being that I live close to the border, uh, this was more extravagant than anything that I ever saw. And while I love the design and the look of it, it definitely feels like a set inside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> I got that. Oh, this is a 90s set for sure. It's like what a Las Vegas version of a Mexican dive bar would be. Yes. I was about to say it's just off the strip Vegas bar. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so I, and I was getting very, very uh, Biff Tannen's like, hotel from back to the future to <laughs> yeah. bad like timeline like vibes from this place but um they pull up there's um bikers and then this is where we get mark's um obviously favorite scene from the movie because when we talked about this last episode this is the moment you referenced not selma hayek uh we get cheech marin's little like i wouldn't even call it like a, a monologue we just get him talking about pussy it's so funny <laughs> it's it's pretty funny i think it's probably one of the more famous scenes from this movie. I think when people think of From Dust Till Dawn, this probably is the scene that they think of because he's a show stealer here. Yeah, Garrett, show stealer. Put the snake down, Selma. Cheech wins. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? How fucking dare you? Um, no, it's very, it's very memorable. I don't know. I always thought it was a bit um, long. I thought it went on. I, I thought the joke landed. I thought it was funny. And then it just kept going. And I was like, okay, we get it, man. And then the part where he breaks the fourth wall. Attention, pussy shoppers. Take advantage of our Fendi pussy sales. If you buy one piece of pussy at the regular price, you will get another piece of pussy of equal or lesser value for only a penny. Try and be pussy for a penny. If you can find cheaper pussy anywhere, <laughs> okay and at this point though we've kind of established a lot of the the grindhousey element of this film so that didn't feel too out of place to me it was always like memorable but it was always like eh, okay that happened i remember uh sex machines pistol crotch more than i remember cheech Marin, honestly but um we're about to get into those characters so we at this point park the rv we start to go inside cheech Marin is doing his little like pussy monologue and then do we know why he tries to stop George Clooney from going in? I think he just didn't like the look of him. He was just like, you know what? We don't need no gringos like you in here. Back it up. And uh, did not go well. How could you not like George Clooney's um, hardcore boy George look in this film? <laughs> I'm just saying. So, yeah, he he breaks his hand, busts his nose, 
beats the shit out of him, throws him on the ground. And then as they're walking in, Tarantino's character kicks him in the side while he's down. I was like, man, that's kind of uncalled for. But again, this is Richie. We don't expect much of Richie at this point. I get that. He's backing his brother up. He's like, you know what? You fight one of us. You're fighting both of us. Uh, so, but he's not fighting. He's literally just like kicking a dude while he's down. It's like at some point, just like just move the fuck on, Richie. It's about sending a message <laughs> to all the other people. Oh, okay, my bad. And if I may, you know, th- just to point out, like they don't know this guy. They they don't want to let him in. The contact that they're meeting at this place, Cheech's other character, Carlos, the gangster who they're giving the money to. Why would you pick a place like this? I mean, it, clearly he's never been there. And does, does Carlos really not know that this is a vampire bar? I mean, how do you avoid that? Oh, how do you not know what this place is? He totally does. I mean, that is probably one of my favorite interactions at the end there where he's like, what were they psychopaths? And he's like, do psychopaths fucking blow up in the sun, Carlos? <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite line from the movie. He was like, even psychopaths don't explode in the sun, Carlos. I was like, there it is. That's it. <laughs> That's such a great line. It was really good. But you know what I mean? Like, why would he, I know he says any place is good as any, but you think this place would have a reputation. It only lets certain people in. Like, if you're trying to make a deal go smoothly, you don't want to pick this freaking giant Las Vegas strip place. You know what I mean? You want some divey bar. Well, he says, he says, this seemed like your kind of place. I just pulled it out and like said it was, it seemed like this was your kind of place. Yeah, but they weren't going to let him in. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> like, he should have done some two seconds of like, hey, I want a table for four uh, under Carlos, please. <laughs> Carlos know, like, says, look, I drove by it a couple of times. It's, it's a rowdy place. It's out in the middle of nowhere and there be no cops and it's open from dusk till dawn. And didn't you say you wanted to meet me in the morning? Here we are. So there's his reasoning. I don't think the Titty Twister is known as the Vampire Bar of Mexico uh, based on how many you know trucks we see. Yeah, seems legit. So I, I don't think Carlos gave it much thought. He just saw it from the road and was like, all right, you know what? Let's check it out. All right. I, it, I can't I can't knock that because I've seen places from the side of the road and I'm like, yo, check that place out. And if someone was like, yo, let's meet someplace. I'd be like, yo, what about this dope place? I mean, yeah, I, after seeing this movie, I'd probably do a little research. <laughs> yeah. You know, just saying. There's all places we've seen from the side of the road. We're like, oh, that place looks interesting that we've never actually been or done any research on. So, you know what? Cheech is off the hook on this one. So, okay, look, I'm not, I don't, I don't care about it that much. So I'll step off. It's just, I thought it was kind of a little weird that they wouldn't let him in. That's all. Yes. No, it was very awkward. That was like, yo, these guys look like they belong. Um, maybe not the Fullers, but you know, George Clooney and Richie alone definitely look like they could be okay. So they get inside and here we get your standard most icely cantina, you know, a bunch of kind of things happening to kind of give you a, a vibe of how the bar is. There are strippers dancing everywhere. There are bikers. There's, you know, all sorts of people just going crazy. You know, it's it's a pretty rowdy looking bar. And then on stage, you've got Martin Short, Chevy Chase, and Steve Martin playing music. Dear little buttercup, won't you stay a while? The Three Amigos, right? <laughs> Thank you for getting my Three Amigos reference. No, it's uh, Tito and the Tarantulas um, are playing on stage. And you just got to get this general vibe. They go up to the bar and um, Danny Trejo, the bartender, won't serve them. And I can't remember what he what the reason he says that. Because it's a trucker bar and you got to be a trucker to drink here. 
That's right. At this point, he calls the bouncer over. The bouncer puts his hand on George Clooney. He's like, I'm going to give you the count to three. He's like, I'm going to give you to the count to three. And shit's about to pop off. And then that's when Harvey Keitel does his his dope little monologue where he's all like, I own a class two license, which means I own a truck, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then Danny Trejo's like, all right, makes sense. Here you go. Here's your, your booze. They go sit down. We get kind of like a little like who's who's rogues gallery of everyone in this bar. We get to see um, Tom Savini as Sex Machine. Now, if you want me to remember a character's name in a movie, don't call him Richie or Kate or Bill. Call him Sex Machine or, you know, the Marauder or something like that. I'm totally going to remember names like that. We also see Fred Williamson as Frost. And I don't know if you guys know Fred Williamson, but he's been in a bunch of Grindhouse stuff. He's like totally badass. He's great. He was in the freaking Bronx, Leave the Bronx movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Escape Escape uh, 2000 or what was it? Um, God, I can't remember the real name of it. But yes, he, he was in that. Uh, I like Leave the Bronx movie. I believe that's what it's called. It's, it's a official title. <laughs> it's not. But for some reason, I can't think of the official title with the main lead character's name is Trash. Trash. Yes. And again, another character name that I will totally remember. <laughs> so anyway, this is where, yeah, yeah, as you pointed out earlier, Mark and John, the um, how he's going to like finish this bottle of booze and then go break it over the guy's head. And Harvey Keitel's like, dude, do you not know when you've won? Do you not know when to quit? Like, he's done. You you won. You got the booze. Like, let it the fuck go. Yeah, And even now, Harvey Keitel is like a, he's just such a stoic badass in his own way. Like, one, he's talking this way to this guy who was going to kill him. Are you such a fucking loser? You can't tell when you've won. Would you call me? Nothing. I didn't make this thing. I asked a question. Would you like me to ask it again? Mm-hmm. Are you such a loser? You can't tell when you've won? The entire state of Texas, along with the FBI, are looking for you. Did they find you? No, they couldn't. You've won, Enjoy it. Yeah, like the balls on Harvey Keitel in this film. You're just like, damn, dude. But I mean, you got to understand, like, he's probably at a place where he's like, what the fuck, man? I don't need this in my life. You know, like, you've made my shit uncomfortable. But yeah, so this actually strikes a a chord with Seth. And he's like, you're right. Have a drink with me. And he kind of lets it go, which I thought was like, okay, interesting. There's like this. And that just goes back to Clooney's character of like, you know, yeah, he's a criminal. But like, he legitimately is a, a rational a sort of rational, like kind of, you know, thinker when it comes to these things. He has a code. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's a twisted code, not a code I think any of us would really uh, use or abide by, but it is a code for him. And it was kind of weird because it was like Harvey Keitel was almost like this, like almost positive influence in this, these chain of events that are happening for Seth, which was really like an interesting kind of like thing to see play out. And then we get um, just a real quick scene where someone, I don't remember her name, she comes out and she dances with a snake. And uh, there's a whole, I don't know, they linger on it too long. Um, No, I'm just kidding. We get Selma Hayek coming out. And what was her name? It was 
Satanica Pandemonium? That is correct, yeah. Pretty close. Santanico. Oh, Santanico. My bad. Sorry, sorry, Selma. Don't don't be upset. <laughs> she comes out and they they do the whole scene where she dances with a giant, massive, like, you know, white boa constrictor or python, whatever the hell that thing is. That thing was way too big. That was such a huge snake. I mean, the weight alone has also got to be heavy, but like, man, I don't know. Snakes freak me the fuck out. It's an albino Burmese python. Oh, okay. Thank you, Mark. Our um, resident herpetologist. Yeah. Come around next week. I'm going to have all kinds of uh, different critters and tarantulas. I'm going to be like that guy on the Jay Leno show that brings all the animals around and puts them in your lap. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Just as long as you say crikey at some point, give us a little crocodile hunter in there. Definitely. And now at this point, Cheech and his buddies come in and they're like, what the fuck, man? And Richie, behind Richie, and then this is where everything kind of goes crazy. So they start a fight. They get up. Somebody gets stabbed in the neck. Someone gets shot. Well, the the key thing is Richie gets stabbed in the hand. Oh. And his hand starts gushing blood. And Selma Hayek's character sees it. And you can see her. She stops dancing. She's just staring at his hand. And she's the first to vampirize. Yeah, she starts breathing real heavy. And I imagine that's not because of the vampire stuff, but because she knew I was watching. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, she definitely is going into like, you know, like the bloodlust. Yeah, she turns and everyone else starts turning with her, but she's like the first that we see. And that's when shit hits the fan. And we see just an all out bar brawl, to your point, with, uh, you know, Sex Machine uses his dick gun. Um, people are just like dropping people on tables. It's just a, a, a huge brawl uh, for a while until they, they kind of get the upper hand. And the rest of the movie is really just like one long big bar fight. Yeah. And two things we didn't mention. One, the uh, the bar, the titty twister, is open from dusk till dawn. So it doesn't open until night. So when they go in, it is actually the sun is set at this point. So it is nighttime uh, when they're at this this bar. Um, the other thing, we have to talk about Sex Machine's crotch gun. Because what it is, <laughs> I mean, he's got this like little leather pouch over his dick area. And it flips open. And a little like gun barrel comes out the middle. And on each side of it is two... Um, I don't know what they're called, uh, like the revolver where you put the bullets in. Chambers? Yes. And there's like two on each side, so they look like little like balls. But um, he's got 12 shots with his dick gun, and he can basically fire this gun from his crotch, which I really want to know the like the actual mechanical workings of this thing because it is so crazy and insane looking. But I love the fact that it's there. Other than it being hilarious, like I don't know why. How do you fire it? Is there like a string that he's pulling on the side? Like... Kind of like Conan O'Brien's like... You got to take the dick gun to the range so you can figure out how you kind of position your hips to get the (laughs) shots that you want. Yeah, you can't just take the dick gun and use it. You need to practice dick shooting. That's just full on dick control, bro. All right. Yeah, I thought it was that or like a pump. Yeah. That man does 900 kegels a day. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's one of those things we just clearly have to take at the at the, the fun factor of like, holy shit, he's got a dick gun. Um, don't question it. <laughs> so he also uses a whip, which um, the trivia says is a nod to Simon Belmont, Mark. So a little Castlevania reference for you. Oh, what is a man? Me and Savini, we know what's up. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, Fred Williams' um, character, who I name is, believe his name is Frost in the movie, um, 
he when he's fighting the vampires, he's using like his just brute strength. He's like lifting them up, flipping over a table, throwing like four of them on each table leg to stake them through the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a really cool shot where he like <laughs> stakes all four ladies in like an X into the screen and the way it's framed up was really cool. So yeah, as Mark said, they get the upper hand and all the vampires kind of like are going away. The the Fuller family is hiding, kind of staying out of it because holy shit, vampires, right? Yeah. And they kind of get the upper hand. All the vampires end up like either getting killed or disappearing. Well, they all, all the vampires inside get killed. But two important things happen before that. One, Richie gets bit and turns and uh, Seth has to kill his brother. So that's like the big emotional twist of the movie. And that was a pretty good scene. And Sex Machine gets bitten. But conveniently, unlike everybody else, he doesn't turn very quickly. Um, So he's like trying to hide it. And while he's turning, they're like having a conversation, right? They're like, all right, what do we know? All right, we know these are vampires. What works against vampires? Uh, Stakes. Does anyone have a cross? Holy water. And they're like trying to, to get their bearings of the situation. And just as like they, okay, we've got it sorted out. They hear like this crazy sound from outside and they're like, what's that? And Seth is like, bats. So now the whole place is just like bats are attacking the outside, essentially. They're like, all right, we'll just hold up in here until the daytime. But Sex Machine turned and he bites Frost and Jacob. He throws uh, Frost in the fight, throws Sex Machine and bursts a hole. And now all the bats start coming in, which is forcing the Fuller family and Seth to retreat to a storeroom. At some point, Fred Williamson grabs, like reaches into the chest of one of the the vampires and pulls out its heart and it's on the ground and it like won't die. And then he looks at his hand and it's still beating. And then that's when um, Sex Machine walks up with a pencil and stabs the heart with a pencil. And it's like, oh, cool. We staked the heart. Nice. Um, That was a really kind of fun scene. But um, that is one thing. I like that. Yeah, that's one thing that uh, Frost says is like, you know, their bodies are like really soft for some reason. They're not like hard. We can use that to our advantage. We can like punch through them or bullets will like actually like blow through them. So that at least helps us out a little bit. That made me so happy uh, because one of my constant complaints with movies, uh, as listeners of this podcast know, is that bodies are not as squishy as movies make them out to be. If they were, people would be getting impaled constantly uh in this movie they're like yeah i don't know these guys are weirdly squishy that's all i ask i don't need to know why they're squishy just (laughs) comment it (laughs) i also love it when he flips a table over and then he like impales four lady vampires on the table with the legs i was like all right that's rad (laughs) we we literally talked about that and you just responded to it a minute ago mark (laughs) (laughs) that's what i get when i'm looking up uh what Bymes pythons look like in the wild she gave me a bunch of crap about me not listening to her enough or something i don't know i wasn't really paying attention (laughs) (laughs) i hey at least you're nothing but diligent um so yeah so we get some some really cool fight scenes the the bats do break in after uh savini turns and savini doesn't just turn like he gets bit but he doesn't really know it and then we get this really really kind of fun scene where the vampires are talking to him in his head and he can hear him. They're like sex machine, kill him. And he's like very comedically like hiding his hands, like a little kid who just got caught in the cookie jar. Like it's so fucking weird to see Tom Savini act. So like kind of like goofy like that. Um, but yeah, he turns, he gets killed. The bats are in, they abscond to the back storage room. Um, Harvey Keitel's character though, gets left out in the, uh, the main, bar area with the the vampires and the bats 
So the family is back there. Scott and Katie are back there with um, uh, Seth. And then they realize, you know, like, hey, we got to we got to get out of here. At that point, that's when Harvey Keitel kind of I don't know if he accepts his fate, but he kind of makes a cross out of a shotgun and a baseball bat and then uses that to kind of like blow his way through the uh, the mass of vampires to get to the back room where he's like, let me in, let me in. They finally let him in. And then that's where he's like, "Okay, hey, look, I got bit. And um, they basically said, like, I don't care about dying. I just want to take as many of these bashes with me as we can. Yeah, I don't think the plan at the once they're in the storeroom, the plan is not, I don't think, to escape. They're like, look, we're just going to go down fighting. There's where this is some crazy shit. We're going to arm up the best that we can because there's like a whole bunch of just random shit in the storeroom from all the truckers that they've killed over the years. They just throw it in here. So they've got like condoms and drills and uh, just whatever you know just lots of miscellaneous junk so like we're gonna do the best that we can and uh and we're gonna go down fighting i think that's like their whole goal in uh in opening the storeroom door then we get this like really cool montage scene where they all kind of like make like homemade makeshift weapons out of all the stuff they find in the crates the dad tells the kids hey look i'm bitten i'm gonna get turned you cannot hesitate you have to fucking kill me if i start to turn and then he like gets real rude with them, like like you promised me right the fuck now, and they do. And it was really, it, I really appreciated the way the kids kind of responded, like very upset, angry about having to accept this thing they didn't want to accept. But yeah, so at this point, bam, kick open the door. They're gonna go in. They're gonna fuck a little things up. And it's just at this point, it's just full on zombie or not zombie, but it's full on vampire killing. Now, I did want to talk about the look of the, the vampires in this. These are very unique looking vampires. Almost like a like when Selma Hayek turns into the vampire version of herself, she's almost scaly, right? Yeah, they look like the dinosaurs from the Super Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you, John? Koopa Troopas. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely have um, some like demon-esque like look to them. They look less like normal vampire. And they look more like Bram Stoker's like weird bat human transformation vampire. Um, they're not like Interview with the Vampire Twilight type people. So that being said, I really appreciated that like the way they looked is like they were really like almost like we have to make them look scarier. Like we have to do something to make them look scarier than just people with fangs, which I, I did appreciate because... So often we get the vampires like, oh, they have fangs. They're pale. There you go. Good enough. And I'm like, no, that's not good enough. These are supposed to be monsters. Yeah. And I I, I guess I put the, the connection to like, what if a reptile person turned into a vampire? This is kind of how I would see him maybe because she's she's got the snake. And then when you look at a still of her face, like I said, she's got like those patches on her skin that almost resemble scales and, and spottiness. So unique look more so than we've seen in a lot of current media. Yeah. And then people who haven't fully transformed into like the reptile-esque versions, like have like very pronounced like bone features, like their brow will become like, you know, kind of pointed and sharp. And so it was, it was just really cool. Like if someone was a vampire, it wasn't just like simple makeup. It was pretty, pretty complex um, kind of visuals. So, yeah, one of the cool things that happens when the everybody turns into the vampires is, uh, Garrett, you said the name of the band was Tito and the and the what now? Tarantulas. Tito and the Tarantulas is the, the actual band that it is. Okay, so they're a real world band. Yes, they're a real band. Okay. They were also in um, Once Upon a Time in Mexico and stuff like that. They were that band in that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, when they turn vampiric, I love the fact that the guy's no longer playing a regular guitar. It's now just like a torso with like an arm and strings on it. Like it's a human body, like stitched together thing. And I'm like, I don't know if the acoustics on a fleshy human torso would be good. It still has a head, which is (laughs) any, whenever they cut to a playing, you could see that head bopping up and down is so well done. Yeah. Great little comedic effect there. I loved it. Um, they actually get away. Or do they explode? Like they do this thing where they're like, fuck you, good night, you know, and then like they explode and disappear. Now, was that them actually dying or was that them sacrificing themselves or was that them like poofing out of existence? Is that, is that a talent that the vampires had? I really couldn't tell. I assumed they were killed because uh, that's what they the dead vampires do, right? They blow up in a little bit of fire. So I just assumed they, they did not uh, make it. Could be wrong. Movie's ambiguous. So if you want to believe that Tito and the Tarantulas escaped, you know, the movie lets you. We'll have to see if they show up in the sequels. Yeah, just go with it. Just go with it. So, yeah. So our characters now are going to go down swinging. They come out of the room. They're killing everything. They're fighting vampires. Everything's, you know, just kind of going crazy. Uh, The dad finally turns. He turns around and Scott, his son, with the holy water super soaker, and condoms filled with holy water, like hesitates and doesn't kill him like he's supposed to. So, well, guess what? He gets fucked up. Yeah. yeah. He does end up shooting his dad, which I'm sure is sad. But uh, but unfortunately, he gets bit by his dad. Yeah. So Scott's going to turn now. And Juliette Lewis's character, Katie, sees this. And she's like, no. And you're just like, all right, come on. Let's get on with it. I mean, it's sad, but, you know, like, let, let's go. We knew this was going to happen. Scott was weak. We saw this already. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) She goes over there and she starts shooting the vampires that are that are eating Scott. And then she takes Scott out as well. And then at this point, they're almost out of bullets. It's only Seth and Katie. And they are kind of back to back. And he's like, how many bullets you got? She's like, not enough. And he's like, "Okay." then just start cold cocking them as soon as you run out of bullets. You know, just go down swinging. At this point we start to see light coming through the bullet holes that have been shot into the walls of this joint. And they're starting to like do little like, you know, rays of sunlight across the room and the vampires try to walk through it and they get burned. You know, classic vampires don't like sunlight thing, which, you know, good. They can't, they can't quite get to Seth and uh, Katie. So they're ready to kind of like go down and they're like, shoot the hole, shoot more holes in the wall. And they do. So they kind of made this little like sunlight, cage around them that the vampires can't quite get in and then that's when you hear charlie outside pull up and he's like hey are you in there and he's like break the fucking door down boom they blow the door open all the vampires are getting like sunlight exposed they're exploding and then that's when we get the the great scene where they walk outside and charlie's like what the hell was that (laughs) and then um as you mentioned earlier john his great line of like psychos don't explode when sunlight hits them and you come to find out, like you guys mentioned it earlier, that the briefcase full of money, it, this is the money that he stole from the bank that he went to jail for originally at the beginning of the film. He's paying Charlie, Cheech Marin's character, to be able to live in El Rey, which is, I guess, like a sanctuary, safe place for criminals. Um, so he's paying for the privilege to be safe and live in El Rey down in Mexico. So that's why he's giving Charlie the money. They drive off. Juliette Lewis's character is like, do you want me to come with you? And he, again, back to this weird moment where he's kind of doing the right thing. He's like, 
do you know where I'm going? Like, no, you, you go do your own thing. Chunks are a bunch of cash. She's got a whole like stack of cash in her hand. He drives off in a Porsche. Cheech Marin drives off in his car. And now Juliette Lewis is looking at, he says the classic line. I may be a bastard, but I'm not a fucking bastard. Oh yes. That's what he tells Kate as to why he won't take her. (laughs) Pretty good line too, which again, just goes to our whole anti-hero status of, uh, Seth. Which, uh, again, I found myself, like, not being upset with Seth most of this movie. I was like, dude, you're a fucking moron. But it was like, okay, I get it. Like, you know, like, he was a really good anti-hero. Like, but you could tell, like, like, when he talks to Carlos, right? He's like, because of you, this girl lost her family. My brother's dead. You could, uh, Carlos, how could I make it up to you? He's like, you could never make it up to me. All right. Instead of 30, I want 15%. Like, he's still, I mean, I'm sure he loved his brother, but he's still a sociopath. He's like, uh, you can make it up to me by giving me money. And he complains. He's like, I said I wanted a new Porsche. This is a 93 Porsche. The guy's like, yeah, you know, it was the guy who had it before barely drove it. It was all highway miles. (laughs) Yeah. But I think, I think Seth is just one of those characters. Like, this is, this is the path I've chosen. And, um, it comes with certain certain hazards and yeah he misses his brother but at the same time he's also like um i still got to get to el rey like i'd rather like not be hunted by the law here so yeah he makes that call that negotiation scene was actually really really fun uh the way they kind of play that out um so they leave and then Juliette lewis kind of looks at the rv bam we cut to a exterior shot from kind of behind the titty twister and we slowly start to fade out not fade out. I'm sorry. We slowly start to pan out. And what we see is the, the titty twister is actually the very tippy top of this like Mexican, almost as kind of like ruins that are built into the side of this cliff that you can't see from the front of the building. But on the back of it, it's like this old, like crazy badass, like, you know, monument crypt type thing and there's a bunch of skulls and dead bodies back there that you can't see from where you are but man i love that 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 reveal was so good i was like that explains it that's totally fucking awesome tremendous visual i mean a lot of logistical questions if you think too hard about it but tremendous visual absolutely i immediately did that i was like well wait a minute how come blah blah and i was like okay stop garrett it's <laughs> like just appreciate that that was a cool if one single helicopter had flown over the bar <laughs> the jig is up <laughs> right or if anyone ever tried to go out the back door <laughs> right so yeah that's another drove around it uh <laughs> well they did have all the uh the the truck um like the uh yeah the 18 wheelers like kind of boneyarded around the side of it yeah so you couldn't really see the cliff from the front it was like kind of blocked off by the uh the trailers but um yeah don't think too hard about it but it was really it was a really cool concept and a really cool kind of like quick explanation of why this is going down at the titty twister but yeah that's it smash cut to your standard tito and tarantula song and fade out I was kind of curious why Katie didn't decide to take a cooler car. There's all those cars out front. Why do you take the RV? Take something fun. Sentimental reasons. She's self-sufficient, Mark. She's not a thief, Mark. (laughs) I think the owners are all dead, John. It's not stealing anymore. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm pretty sure via the court of law it is. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about Mexico law, but over here, yeah, you can't just walk into some dead person's house and be like, well, I guess this is mine. They're dead now. You don't know about the uh, ritual stealing of someone's stuff when they die? Everyone just floods to your house, takes all your shit. Yeah. Uh, just something about taking a vampire's motorcycle doesn't really bother me all that much, I guess. All right, fair enough. That's where my morality line is drawn. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Richie, calm down. <laughs> Uh, one thing I did want to mention before we, we wrap up is we sort of brushed over it, but the effects in this movie are just awesome. They have like some incredible practical effects, uh, like the makeup work and limbs are flying off. There's blood everywhere. It's uh, really just some spectacular work by the uh, effects team. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, they they hold up really well. Like I was surprised because, I mean, again, it's been so long since I've seen this. I was like, wow, all this is like, this holds up really well. Um, I was reading that this movie was, it used like a new effects studio, like um, that Tarantino knew of because he was promoting them for this movie. Uh, they did the, uh, the ear scene in reservoir dogs for free for him. Uh, but yeah, like this was like a new visual studio, but man, they killed it. it. They hold up so well, even like the CG stuff like holds up really well, which normally you don't get from mid nineties horror movies. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, this one had a budget of 19 million bucks and turned out uh, 59.3 in uh, the box office. And I'm sure it was a big rental hit and purchase hit as well. Um, so, you know, that's why it's it uh, spawned two more sequels afterwards. Yeah, I don't think it made its money back in the theaters. I think it made it like, like, I don't know if it did or not, but it became a huge cult hit. It definitely was like big after the fact. Yeah, definitely. Um, I would totally recommend this movie. Uh, it's got a little bit of comedy, some horror elements, and then it is a Tarantino film with a Robert Rodriguez uh, grindhouse rapper. I think it's a lot of fun and definitely shouldn't be missed. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, it's not a perfect film, but it's it's awesome. And it's so just enjoyable um, that if you haven't seen it, definitely, definitely watch it. And if you have seen it, rewatch it because it's worth it. It's got Tom Savini with a dick gun and Selma Hayek. So I'm going to call it a perfect film. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yes, de I definitely recommend it. It's um, it's it surprisingly holds up really well. If you're not a Tarantino fan, you're probably not going to like enjoy this as much. But even if you're not a Tarantino fan, it's still a good enough film that you'll you'll dig it. Um, this definitely goes on my like full recommendation list. You guys ever seen a movie called Four Rooms? Yes. Yes. Love Four Rooms. The uh, Robert Rodriguez section of that is my favorite part. It's He directed the one where that had um, Antonio Banderas in the hotel room and it had the hooker in the mattress. Mm -hmm. Oh, that is such a good short. That's the best one of those. I wonder if this is where Tarantino and Rodriguez got their start in all their collaborations was doing this movie. Oh, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Wouldn't surprise me. Tarantino did the fourth segment, uh, the one where they're trying to do the lighter bet. Yeah. Which was also pretty good. I got to rewatch that movie. It's been a while. It holds up really well. And Tim Roth, man, he does such a great job uh, in this film. Just aces. Yeah, it's a good one. All right. Well, anything else you guys want to say on Dusk Till Dawn? Some hike. We love you. <laughs> <laughs> she is a listener. 
I'm sure of it. And she'll appreciate that, Garrett. God, I wish she was. I, actually, I don't wish she was after, after I was all like, she's so fucking hot. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, that'd be very stressful knowing that Selma Hayek was listening. <laughs> we better step up our game. We make too many mistakes. We're sorry, Mrs. Hayek. <laughs> all right. Well, listeners, what do you think of From Dust Till Dawn? Do you agree with our opinions of it? Why don't you let us know on our social media? You can find us at Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find all things Grave Talk at thegravetalk.com. Uh, Garrett. We got another one coming out next time. What are we doing? Well, Mark, the next film we have to do, while not being a horror movie, but was on the list, is the James Cameron, I want to call it a flop, but maybe it wasn't, Aliens. The sequel to the superior horror film, Alien. But that is the next film we're going to be doing. (laughs) Oh, oh, Garrett. Uh, I didn't know how deep your words could cut. I don't mince words, baby. I just go for the I go for the vein right out the gate. <laughs> All right. We'll save talking about the masterpiece and influential piece of art that is Aliens for next time. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us this week. Stay safe out there. Stay warm. And we'll see you then. <laughs>